0: Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. All right. Hey, Zach Shiner here. We're going to ask the question today of who do you put on ECMO? And there's no easy answer to this one. But this year we've had three papers that have come out, one coming out next month, that have looked at this very question. And so, Over the next uh, several minutes, you are going to hear from the first authors of all of those papers. I have interviewed all of them. And we're going to really dig a deep dive into what type of patient we should be thinking about. Now, just as a little bit of background, most of the world is kind of adhering to the same general concept. One is that the arrest should be witnessed that they should have a no-flow time, meaning no chest compressions, of less than 10 minutes, and that they should have a low-flow time, meaning a time of chest compressions, of less than 60 minutes. Now, we start getting a little bit more cloudy when we start talking about what type of initial rhythm they have. Most of us agree that asystole should be excluded. Most people say that VF should be included. And then the PEA patients are sort of this in-between criteria that we're not sure what to make of as of yet. The second thing is, is about age. We usually have some arbitrary age cutoff, whether that's 65, 70, 75. Who knows? What is the right answer here? And we'll look at that over this time as well. And then, finally, there's all these other things. These, these many institutions are using other criteria to try and see whether these patients are good or not, using lactate, pH, end CO2. Even some, such as in Paris where they're using signs of life during chest compressions, meaning they're moving, or they're, they're even having pupillary constriction, that this would be a criteria that would trump you into patients that should get ECMO. So we're going to hear from three authors, Guillaume de Beatty out of France. We're going to hear from Josh Reynolds out of Pittsburgh. And we're going to hear from Nate Haas out of the University of Michigan. Let's jump right in with Guillaume de Beatty.
1: Yeah, that's correct. In the French Alps, Grenoble. <laughs>
0: and, and you're an emergency physician?
1: Yeah, I'm an emergency physician uh, at the University Hospital of Grenoble. Yeah.
0: So we're going to talk about prognosticators. And you recently published a meta-analysis in Resuscitation that gave a lot of insight into this. And so I was hoping just for you to kind of give us a brief background on, on what do you think are the things that we should be looking for as far as prognosticators in ECMA?
1: As we uh, see in the, in the meta-analysis, uh, there are a few factors that can help, and we are we are not very sure. It's, it's difficult to select the good patient for for ECMO. So the, the thing that we know for certain it's uh, that uh, the low flow duration uh, has to be the shorter as possible. That's uh, the, the the main point, probably the the best prognostic factor uh, actually. And the the reason, of course, uh, Vf patients have a better prognosis pronoct- and. Uh, and uh, it's uh, kind of still controversial that uh, if we should put a ECMO on a patient with a non-shockable rhythm, and uh, and the, the other factors that we found in, a, in our study, uh, it's uh, more the at uh, admission hospital like arterial pH or serum lactate that so can be a helpful at ad- admission. But
0: uh. all right, so shockable rhythm, good. Short low flow times, good. We talked about uh, high pH and low lactate. These are good.
2: Yeah,
1: that's, that's okay. correct. Yeah.
0: And do we have, do you have numbers? Like should we be, is there numbers in our brain that we should be thinking about when we come to pH and lactate saying, okay, this is a patient that's just, um, I'm not even, it's a non-starter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. actually we, we don't have data for that and there is no clear cutoff value for, for for that value for that data I know that some uh, team are putting the lactate at 18 as a as a limit but uh, we, we don't really know the, that answer probably 18 is very high so but maybe a lower value can be a, something better but actually we, we don't really know for, about that so
0: yeah this is something that I've struggled with so Dimitri right younopoulos does the yeah. 18 is his cutoff but it- in your study right the the breakpoint was a lot lower than that it was like about nine point nine in the survivors and what was it 13 or something in the non survivors
1: very quickly but I think it was 15 and uh, but uh, that's uh, the, the mean value of course they are <laughs> there are extreme and so yeah we, we don't know what is the, the, the real cutoff value and we don't we didn't look at that in, in the study we didn't, uh, that's something so, I mean- that something can-
0: just kind of judging the, va- the the assessment of 18 for a second here because I, I think this is a really important part of of this whole discussion is where where are our breakpoints? so dimitri's saying you know what i i just don't want really dead people your study suggesting that most of the of the non-survivors are still quite a bit less than 18
1: yeah that's good. that's correct it was uh, 30... is the the, the mean value for the lactate in non-survivors. So it's it's lower than 18, but but I think Dimitri is correct. You you, you need to have a a higher cutoff to be uh, be sure to don't miss uh, a a survival.
0: Before we leave this for a second, let's get to pH. So in pH, what's the number that we're thinking about?
1: It's kind of the same for for non non survivor It was uh, six or almost seven for non survivor in our meta-analysis, but again it's a mean value so and we don't know what is uh, really can say maybe 6.8 something like that uh, maybe a cutoff but uh, again there is no data actually to support that and uh.
0: yeah i i agree with that one my read on this is that ph we have to know that really low is still survivable so you know you get a 7 you get a 6.9 like these are still values that are survivable now if we start getting a lot lower than that maybe it will cause you pause but overall, these are sick people, and so so if you get a you know a pH of seven point one, hey, that's that's game on. That's that's let's do this.
1: And uh, that's also very. Uh, that's depend of the post resuscitation care that the patient are going to have after uh, after the ECMO. So that's uh, yeah, that's also can play. If we improve our post resuscitation care, uh, maybe a lower value are going to be uh, survivable and. Uh,
0: Okay, so the next thing we talked about was shockable rhythm, and I think one of the interesting things, this is the benefit of meta-analysis, and we're going to get into the discussion about the the methodology here in a second, but none of the studies showed overall statistically significant differences in shockable rhythm, but when you pool the data, now you have a statistically significant difference for for shockable rhythm, is that right?
1: Yeah, that's, that's correct. That's uh, that, that was difficult because uh, a lot of study uh, shockable rhythm. It's uh, it was of the inclusion criteria, so that um, there is not much study left for the analysis. But uh, yeah, with the, the study we we had to do that. Uh, it was significant with for shockable rhythm.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. In that when you have it as a non-inclusion criteria, you also have to think about associative other causes that might be contributory meaning that you actually are getting the patients that for whatever reason they decided to not follow the protocol that was in front of them and so that data you know potentially could be spurious
1: yeah and even in the studies where there is an inclusion an exclusion criteria for non-shockable rhythm uh, they, they still include some patients with non-shockable rhythm and probably the one with the best prognosis. So, so that's uh... That's also a, a confounding factor. And,
0: uh, right. So let's talk short, low flow time. Short, low flow time, what are the numbers that we are thinking about in there?
1: <laughs> Again, <laughs> so the, for the short, low flow time, it's probably around 60 minutes with, when the ECMO is uh, is put around uh, before 60 minutes. So in, in our study, it was 54 versus sixty five uh, 64. So it's uh, just a 10 minute difference between the two groups. Uh it was it was significant also. You know, in the study from the recent study from Dimitri uh it's, it was also 60 minutes It's cut off point uh, so.
0: Yeah, and I think this is an interesting one as well. I mean like also same with lactate and pH. Like 60 minutes is a long time. And so for some of us who think when we think short, low flow times, we think of 10 minutes, 20 minutes. But overall, we have to remember that we have 60 minutes to put these people on. And, and even for uh, you know, he's he says that as long, as long as he's starting at 60 minutes, then he's, then he's feeling comfortable.
1: Yeah, that means that it's 40 minutes and, uh, to be ready to set up the ECMO because usually it's around 20 minutes to, to put the ECMO and the ECMO to be running. So, yeah, that's 40 minutes uh, all with the resuscitation, and so that's uh, that's difficult to set time. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So let's talk about kind of one so also interesting point is what did not show up, what did not show up as, as statistically significant. And one of the interesting ones was bystander standard CPR.
1: Yeah, that's that's was a surprise. But again, I think it's uh, because it's most uh, most of the time it's an inclusion criteria. You have to have a very short no flow time. So uh, probably that's why it was uh, not significant in in the study because uh, all of these patients have very short no flow time in most uh, in most of them. So that's. Uh,
0: so I would agree with that as well. I think the take home for this is not. <laughs> That bystander CPR is not an important thing. It is absolutely an important thing, and in your study, even even though it was not significant, it was actually still highly beneficial. It just didn't didn't get the significance, oh, yeah. <laughs> and probably mostly because of it being part of the inclusion criteria. Now, gender and gender is going to be interesting because we're going to talk a little bit later on with with uh, Nate Haas with his recent study. Gender was also not shown to be uh, statistically significant, and either was patient age. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I agree, There probably no, no difference in survival between uh, between gender and that's uh, known in, in, uh, in non-ECMO studies. And for the age, uh, there's several uh, reasons. If they have uh, good selection criteria and it's just the age with no comorbidities and uh, so probably the age is not that much important if you don't have comorbidities and, uh, but, uh, but again, probably a, <laughs> a selection criteria that uh, don't put more and patient uh, with uh, with comorbidities and uh, and in some studies uh, there are there were also a limit with age so that's uh, that can be a confounding factor.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the methodology here because this is important. We're talking about meta-analysis, composed 15 different studies for this, which had uh, over 800 patients. Tell us how mm-hmm. to interpret sort of what are the limitations of of, of putting these data sets together.
1: So. Yeah, the, the first one it was not uh, individual data or meta-analysis, so that's uh, that's uh, the, the main limit of the study. And uh, probably with an individual data meta-analysis, we 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 may have been able to uh, to look at uh, yeah cutoff point for lactate and pH uh, in uh, in a better way. And uh, yeah, and the study are, are very different from different parts of the world, so it's always difficult to uh, to analyze from from different pre-hospital system and. Uh, so that's, uh, that's probably the, the two main limit of, the, of this analysis. Thing.
0: Yeah, I—I—I'm gonna steal your your verbiage here because I like it so much. It says precise but spurious results. So the idea that that we could actually get statistically significant data that is completely wrong, and that is also always the fear these yeah. data collections.
1: That's why the. We probably uh, need some randomized control, control try to to be able to to really look at that uh, productivity factor.
0: And we're going to talk about with, with Nate, like I said, and with the Elso database, which has individual data, but also has just as many problems as far as trying to assess how do you put these different groups, these different people who are who are managing patients in very different ways throughout the world. How do you try and collect that data together? Okay, so yeah, you know, let's. I just want to kind of now get, like, to the point and say, for you, in 2017, you have a patient in front of you. How are you using your data to change management?
1: Okay, so... uh yeah, so I think we have some very important prognostic factors that are VF, uh, VFVT patients, uh, refractory VFVT patients. Uh, we have probably something uh, that we didn't have uh, in the meta-analysis. It's uh, some sign of life. If uh, the patient is gasping or if the patient is moving during CPR, uh, and this, and uh, you, can't get the heart back very quickly. You have to think very quickly to go to the ECMO because the low flow time is going to be a, a very important prognostic uh, factor. So, so yeah, I think we, we, you have to select the patient very quickly. And uh, after, if the patient is selected uh, and uh, you don't didn't get a risk in the first 10 minutes on the field, you have to move very quickly to to put the ECMO on. Uh,
0: Short, short low flow times no matter what, shockable rhythm no matter what. For you, are you doing point-of-care lactates on these patients, point-of-care pH?
1: Uh, yeah, we are doing that uh, not on the field. We are doing that uh, at the, in the hospital. But in France, you know, we have a pre-hospital uh, mobile intensive care, so we, we have a physician on scene, so we could do that on the field. But, uh, yeah, we, we wait uh, at the hospital, and, and we also use the antidal CO2 that was not uh, available for that So
0: Yeah. Okay. And then, so if you see a a value of a pH of 6.7 or you see a lactate of 20, are you saying, nope, we're going to, we're going to hold off on this patient?
1: Yeah, probably. If, uh, well, if he, if he has VF and gasping, we probably, uh, regarding the value of lactate, we will probably go for, for it. Uh, and yeah, for other more limit patients, yeah, we, we, we are, Taking uh, accounts or is it of lactate? And, uh.
0: Okay, so that's good. So this is a this is a decision. This is a collect. This is collective data that you're putting together. All these different points and saying, okay, is this the right patient? So shock, shockable well, rhythm, definite plus. The guy has signs of life. Okay, definite plus. I'm not. I'm not going to worry as much about the lactate or pH. I'm going to go for it. All right, Guillaume, that was that was amazing. Hey, we're going to move on. Our second interview here is with Dr. Joshua Reynolds out of the University of Pittsburgh.
3: Essentially, we found that, uh, at least in this data set, and this was a data set of about 11,000 subjects, uh, using pretty standard and accepted selection criteria for eCPR, uh, we found about a 10 to 11% prevalence of potential candidates. So these are folks with age 18 to 65, witnessed arrests. We allowed for a no flow time up to 10 minutes uh, from the 911 call, and we we did allow PEA uh, folks in there, just no asystole. And we found that right around 11% of these, these, these folks, about 1,200 of them, would have hypothetically been eligible for ECPR.
0: And so I, I think this is important to kind of deep dive into those specific criteria. So some of us use a little bit longer, right? Our age may be up to as far as 75. And some of the other data that we'll talk about here as well maybe suggest that age isn't even an important criteria. Maybe that shouldn't be included into our data sets. Now, clearly, some of the other databases are such as Dimitri. They're only using VF, VT. Utah is going that direction. But we do know that there's a number of patients in the PEA sector that would benefit as well.
3: Yeah, I I was hesitant to throw out all those pseudo-PEA patients. I wanted to keep them in.
0: So, So, yeah, so that's the inclusion criteria. Now, let's ask the question does ECMO work? Does this data set suggest that these patients would benefit from ECMO? And this is where I think we need to look at your study and compare it to what our worldwide data is.
3: Yeah, so I mean, so that's the million-dollar question. You know, there's plenty of observational evidence that tells us that eCPR is possible. People even survive afterwards, and some people even do well afterwards. The question is whether we're actually conferring benefit or whether the folks we pick for eCPR are so likely to do well anyways, are, are we just taking cream of the, the cream of the crop? Are we really able to confer that much additional benefit with eCPR over and above just patients that are like more likely to do well on their own regardless? And so th- that's a question I really wanted to get at with this project was looking at essentially the, comp- uh, the, the eligible folks. How do they fare with conventional resuscitation?
0: And what did you think? When you got done with this, do you think that ACL- eCLS works?
3: yeah well I'd t- <laughs> tell you my my, uh, my personal bias is yes uh, I, I tend to be a believer in ECPR, but it's tough I mean th- this is why we need a trial so you know we found that you know of folks that met those clinical selection criteria, uh, about sixty percent of them got RoSC on their own with just conventional resuscitation but um, just under forty percent survived a hospital discharge and about thirty percent survived a hospital discharge with with uh, reasonable um, or favorable uh, functional neurologic recovery, modified and scale 0 to 3. So, so th- I mean that's really the comparator that you're you're competing against is a 30% uh, survival to discharge rate with with good neurologic recovery. Well, you know and the question is can can ECPR
0: do better than that? Can we beat 30%? But I would I would and check me if I'm wrong. I, I would, this is why I got you here because I want to ask this very question, which is that yes, 30% of the patients in your study. With that inclusion criteria, survived to discharge, but that did not include the how prolonged their arrest was. And you did kind of go into this data and and, and look at it a bit closer. Yeah,
3: yeah, and exactly. So that that thirty percent is a dynamic figure. I mean, these are all time dependent outcomes. You know, how how long people got CPR dictated their ultimate probability of uh, of surviving with good neurologic recovery. So so across the board. You know, the question is, across the board, can ECPR beat 30 uh, percent? You know, Dimitri's numbers would suggest that it probably can. That's in a small data set. Uh, you know, this is why we desperately need a trial. So what we did was we we essentially plotted curves. We plotted time on the x-axis and the probability of, of MRS 0 to 3 at discharge on the y-axis. And then we we plotted conditional probabilities over time. What's the probability that you're going to achieve eventual MRS 0 to 3 among moving forward among subjects that have not yet achieved ROSC. And as you can imagine, that, that curve starts high and then over time it, it goes down. And the question is, where's the inflection point of that curve and, and where does the curve ultimately bottom out? And at what time should we, if we're going to do ECPR, what time should we move from conventional resuscitation to ECPR in terms of shifting risks and benefits? Okay, so
0: I definitely want to get to that inflection point question in a second. But before we get there, You talked about Dimitri's data. He's talking about witness VF patients. And if you say, all right, a witness VF patient that comes in, their chance, and he shows a 45% survival, that actually isn't that great if you compare all comers. But if you compare someone who had witness VF, bystander CPR, lactate less than 18, and a downtime of 60 minutes... Well, that that percentage is almost zero. And in your study, you show that. You show that once you get past, like, the 45-minute mark, which is pretty much every eCPR case, your chance of survival, even in the ECLS criteria, is very low. Exactly. So when we're... When we're comparing these data sets that we see throughout the world and we see 29%, 32%, we're not really comparing it to that 30% that you have of all comers inclusion criteria. We really should be comparing it to the 45 minute plus downtime.
3: Yeah, exactly. Because all the, these are all time-dependent events. These are all time-dependent outcomes. And and you know, you know, as you know, you know, time is the enemy in these
0: patients. I mean, is that a fair enough assessment that we would say that using your data set, which I see the survival rates at, at uh, I think you kind of at 34 minutes we start getting not as many patients even in the trial, right? So our our confidence intervals Correct. go big, but at yep. those. At those higher levels, the survival is far less than five percent.
3: Correct. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, you know, I've got the I've got the curves in front of me. Um, but essentially, you know, the, just the probability of ROSC, the probability of ROSC at time zero, you know, un, among clinical eCPR candidates, started at about sixty-five percent. You know, by 30 minutes, it drops down to about 20%. So after half an hour of CPR, you know, you've only got a 20% probability of ROSC moving forward, and that, that's just to get ROSC. You know, if you want to talk about survivors with with good modified Rankin skills, well, then at time zero, we're we're starting at 30%. You know, if someone if someone gets uh, if someone only gets 60 seconds of CPR. And as an ECPR candidate, you know, that they've got a 30% chance of surviving a hospital discharge with an MRS of 0 to 3. By the time you get out to 30 minutes, that probability is down to uh, less than 10%, about
0: 8%. Okay, so again, you know, this is a lot of numbers, but in my mind, these numbers are really important. And what Josh has shown here is that as you prolong out into your more duration of your CPR, even among patients who would meet these very strict criteria that we use, you know, witness, no asystole, less than 10 minutes of no CPR, age less than 65. Even amongst those patients, the probability of ROSC and modified rank and scale, good neurologically intact patients is very low.
3: Yeah, it, it essentially bottoms out of 30 minutes. Um,
0: you know, the, the
3: incremental loss between 20 and 30 minutes is not very much. Um, so you're already approaching bottom at 20 minutes, and it's really bottomed out by 30 minutes. Um, You know, to the point where 30 minutes of CPR, an eCPR candidate, uh, 30 minutes of traditional CPR, an eCPR candidate only has about an 8% chance of leaving the hospital with some reasonable amount of brain recovery. You know, and and that's really, uh, you know, that's really the comparison group because, you know, eCPR folks are going to usually get at least half an hour of resuscitation before they get on pump.
0: Yeah, and you look. I mean, most of us have actually average times of, of you know, just under sixty minutes. Some of them, some of us, over sixty minutes. Yeah. Okay. So, second question, which is equally important, and that is, when should we start transporting these patients? How can we use this data to to give us an idea?
3: Yeah. So, uh, so we found, at least in this data set, and I will say this number tends to replicate itself. I've tried to answer this question in a few other data sets, and and the number 20 minutes just seems to keep cropping up over and over and over. It's this recurring theme. So we found, at least in the prime data set, uh, somewhere between 10 and 20 minutes is a sweet spot. Um, You know, We we don't want to go too early, at least uh, in a system with hospital-based ECMO, uh, like in the U.S. Obviously, mobile ECMO is a whole different different animal. But for hospital-based ECMO, uh, you want to at least stay on scene for 10 minutes because you're going to accrue Uh, 50% of your ROSCs in that first 10 minutes for patients that ultimately uh, survive and do well. Um, So it it behooves you to stay on scene for at least 10 minutes. Um, After 10 minutes, then you're getting into the latter half of ROSC accrual events um, and that's where you know that's where you open up the potential to switch to Plan B and, and transport and go. Past 20 minutes, there's we, we at least in these data did not observe much point in staying on scene past 20 minutes. Past 20 minutes, the, you're approaching the bottom of the curves and there, there's there's really very little incremental loss. And especially when you start uh, accounting for transport time and uh, procedural cannulation time and going on pump time to make it in that hour, uh, we found the sweet spot was 10 to 20 minutes. I will say we also looked at rhythms. Uh, we looked at the, just the shockable folks versus the PEA folks, and we found that for the shockable folks, uh, it's probably better to stay longer. It's probably better to stay for the full 20. For PEA, there's no point in staying past 10.
0: Oh, that's, that's such good stuff. And, and this also, because you know, we're not only talking about out of hospital, we're talking about in ED or in ICU or in-hospital arrests. And sort of that idea of where is the risk to this patient? Because you're putting, you know, essentially large bullet holes through their groin. So uh, where does this risk to the procedure start creeping down enough so that you are see that it's a benefit to the patient?
3: Yeah, yeah. And these data, we suggest that, you know, uh, for the first 10 minutes, the benefit of regular good old CPR on scene or in the D or wherever you are, uh, the benefit of that outweighs the risk of, uh, cannulation. Um, the, you know, past 10 minutes, it starts to get murkier and once you hit 20 minutes, um, then, then the, ben- the risk benefit of curve shifts and to the point where it's, uh, um, you know, where it favors eCPR.
0: That's great. Yeah. I think, I think we have to take this this part of the data with a little bit of a grain of salt, meaning that we do understand that there is potential harm to a patient at the 10-minute mark, at the 15-minute mark, even a little bit at the 20-minute mark, given the fact that we may potentially be having poor quality CPR in the back of a rig than we would be sitting there. And so does that benefit of eCPR counteract that and i think i think you're right i think there's some place right around that uh 15 minute mark
3: yeah you know and in a perfect world these folks are all being transported with mechanical devices and with at least quality
0: circulation and route hopefully yes and uh, and we would hope that they are still getting you know appropriate defibrillation and we're still getting adequate ventilation that we're not over bagging them and all all the other things that we know can be associated with with uh, return of spontaneous circulation So, yeah, I think this this data does give us some, at least, credence for some of the now trials, multiple different places where they're using 10 minutes as a cutoff, and some are using 20 minutes as a cutoff to transport pre-hospital to their their eCPR center. Now, one additional thing that Josh and I talked about was what if you get ROSC? What if you're able to actually use ECMO simply to look at our data sets and say, of the patients who get ROSC, how well did those fare?
3: But the interesting thing we found was that if those folks could get ROSC, if the eCPR-eligible folks actually achieved ROSC, that curve was upshifted a lot higher. It plateaued at around 30% compared to single digits percent, which suggests that maybe uh, what the eCPR-eligible folks need is ROSC. Maybe there's something about them, or at least for some folks, there's something about them uh, that prevents them from getting ROSC or they just can't quite get ROSC on their own. But if they could get ROSC... Our data suggests that they would do uh, that; they would fare reasonably well, and about thirty percent of them could leave the hospital with a good neurologic outcome. And so, for those folks, ECPR may be their their ROSC equivalent, or what they need uh, in order to get the outcome that they could get if only they could get ROSC.
0: Anything else, Josh, that you would say as far as this data, or what we can answer, or what we can look at? Yeah, uh, I mean, two things. I think um, I
3: I alluded to this earlier. You know, these are all clinical eligibility criteria. This this in no way reflects actual geographic access. Um, We've looked at that question uh, with some colleagues uh, in a separate project, and, you know, our our preliminary estimates at least, uh, you know, we're estimating that about 40% of the U.S. population lives within a 45-minute drive of an ECMO-capable hospital. Um, you know, and that, that's just raw data that we pulled. We pulled a list of uh, participating hospitals from the ELSO website and, and plotted drive-time isochrones on a map and overlaid that with population density. You know, they, these are all very rough estimates. But, I mean, it would, the, the next step really, I think, is to is to actually start geocoding arrests, geocode individual cases that you know are ECPR candidates based on clinical selection criteria and actually figure out. You know how many of them have access to uh, to ECPR and to an ECMO capable hospital. So that's one. I, I think the other thing is, you know, if, if you just if you do some back of the envelope math and you think about how how ECPR might move the needle on overall survival. And I was, you know, if, if we assume, if we just round for simplicity, if we assume that about 10% of all arrests. Are ECPR eligible? If we ran down from 11 to 10 percent, then when you do the math, it turns out that for every uh, for every 10 percent absolute increase in survival that ECPR might give us, uh, that translates to a 1 percent absolute increase in survival across the board in all comers. So if there are 350,000 arrests in the country and 10 percent of them are eligible for ECPR, that's 35,000 folks. Say we say we move the needle 20 percent. Say we go from 30% survival to 50% survival. Um, you know, we've just netted an additional 7,000 survivors. Uh, that 7,000 divided by our total arrest number per year, um, it only translates into moving the needle at a couple percentage points. Um, so, so there's there's about a factor of 10 conversion. For every 10%, we move the needle with eCPR, we're going to move the needle about 1% uh, across the board.
0: That That's a very interesting calculation there. So So yeah, so when you really start asking yourself, you know, is this worth it? Is this financially worth it? Is this worth all the trouble that we're putting into it? We've got to realize that, yeah, even large increases in survival, we're talking about a relatively small group of people, at least with your inclusion criteria
3: yeah but we 'll see you know, in the cardiac arrest world uh, a 2%, uh, you know, a two percent absolute increase in overall survival is uh, you know is a twenty percent relative increase. I mean if we did that in the cardiac arrest world,
0: there would be ticker tape parades all right Josh Reynolds talking about uh, data sets using the rock prime trial. he showed that survivability even amongst very good ECMO candidate patients drops off asymptotically. And when we start talking about these 60-minute of rest times, the survival rate is abysmal, saying suggesting that the case series data that we have is advantageous. But moving on from Josh, we're going to talk finally with Nate Haas
2: from the University of Michigan. So these are all coming from the single uh, database or registry itself. And so obviously uh, something like a registry or database is going to have some limitations with itself too, with things like compliance of reporting, and, uh, you know, all the variables that come with that. But, yeah, definitely I think it has an advantage from being from a single registry as, a, uh, as opposed to, the, you know, piecing together the different trials.
0: All right. So what did you find?
2: So, uh, again, it was a total of 217 patients, and we observed an overall survival to hospital discharge rate of 27.6%. And so, as you know, just for comparator, the uh, rate of survival to discharge in the United States for all comers, about hospital arrest is about 11%, and so this was associated with 27%. Just for comparison, but a couple of interesting caveats to that survival to discharge rate, uh, we observed male gender to be individually predictive of mortality, uh, specifically with an adjusted odds ratio of 2.1. Similarly, increasing uh, weight was associated with mortality, but the odds ratio was about 1.02. But interestingly, uh, we observed age to have no prediction on mortality, and so we observed no statistically significant difference between ages of uh, different groups. And so I think that's one of the most interesting findings is that a lot of uh, the literature currently will have strict inclusion or exclusion criteria for patient selection for eCPR based on age specifically, and so I think our study brings this into question uh, as we observe no difference between uh, age groups, the eCPR
0: talking about signal versus noise, and I think actually there may be some signal in this age idea. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting findings. I think one that probably has the most potential to impact practice from from our study. So we were able to break uh, the patients down by decade of life, but specifically we saw no difference in the rate of survival based on the decade of life you're in. And so for reference, the overall survival rate was 27.6 percent, and patients greater than 70 years old uh, had a survival of 27.8 percent. And so that, that trend carries across all the way from 18 years old to greater than 70, that there's no difference between these decades of life. And actually, the oldest survivor in the registry that they report on was a patient who was 87 years old. So I think uh, this observation is one that has potential to impact practice, and that you know, like we alluded to earlier, a lot of inclusion and exclusion criteria are using in somewhat arbitrary age definitive cutoff. I think this brings that practice into question of using a definitive age cutoff on including or excluding someone from, you know, this potentially life-saving therapy.
0: Okay. So good points. We, I do, I do think it's something that we need to chew on and we need to kind of say, maybe there is some, some signal there, but Still, we don't know that this is not associative. That this is that this is actually causal. So, we if all these people having inclusion criteria that is select for patients that are under 75 or under 65, those few patients that are included in the Elso registry that are above those those ages may have been the very very best, the least comorbid patients, the patients that were getting immediate uh, manual chest compressions. So we. It's nice to think about, but we've got to still temper it as far as whether it's causative. All right, let's take home today's episode. We talked about a number of different things. We talked about VF and bystander CPR and how these are in inclusion criteria, and so it's really tough to to make definitive statements on this. VF clearly showed better benefit in the meta-analysis. Short low flow times, I think this is a no-brainer. We all know the faster we get them on the pump, the better. When we talk about lactate and pH, we know they're really sick, so these numbers are low. But some of the numbers that I think in my head, a pH of 6.9, a lactate of 13, these are the numbers when I start to have some pause. We also talked about how we need to temper this argument about 30% of out-of-hospital survival. That's just not true. We need to think about that on a time variable and how on our ECMO patients, this is at 45 minutes, the survival is far less than 10%. And so that these 30%, these 29% values that we're getting throughout the world, they're quite impressive. We also said that ECMO can be used as a bridge to ROSC. And we know that data sets show that patients who get ROSC has a dramatic improvement in their survival. Finally, we talked about age. This is potentially some signal. This might be something where we start thinking of age as less important than we previously thought. All right, from Zach Shiner, Edie Ecmo, thank you to Guillaume Debatey, Josh Reynolds, Kevin Haas for making the this episode on how do we do ECMO amazing. Thank you. Bye.